Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Walter Poppy, your host of the Go to Market podcast, where we break down go to market strategies and tactics with founders, revenue operators, and investors to get actual insights to make your go to market plans faster and more predictable. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. All right, Kyle, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kyle, I want to say, first off, you're doing some really great things. I really appreciate uh, having you coming on to this show. Uh, one thing I've always noticed, you just keep adding such great value across the place. So I just want to say it's uh, super exciting. Well, with that being said, uh, if anybody has not uh, seen you on LinkedIn or other places, how do you introduce yourself at parties and tell them what you do uh, for a living? How do I introduce myself at parties? Uh, the, the way that I usually approach it, and it's the same as how I describe how I earn a living, is I, I serve the marketing team at Lessonly. Uh, my, my role is chief marketing officer. And um, other than that, I'm a, a, a historian on the side. And when I say historian, take that at the lowest level possible that you can think of. Um, amateur historian. So okay. I serve... I serve the marketing team at Lessonly, and I'm an amateur uh, military history advocate, I guess. Okay. All right. I'll, I, I got to have to Which ask. sounds very boring if I'm at a party. Oh, no, no. I, I can only imagine uh, some of the like uh, curiosity that picks up from that. Tell me more about this uh, amateur historian and what particular like military history do you like dig into? Well, if if... You know, you might remember, and those listening might remember that we used to rent VHS tapes. I'm not sure how old you are. I'm not going to ask on a podcast, but <laughs> we used to rent VHS tapes and mm. you used to go into grocery stores to do that. There was like mm. video sections in grocery stores before Blockbuster yep. and all that. The One of the first videos that I rented as a kid was a movie called Gettysburg, which is a, which was one of the only ones that was a two VHS set because it was like four hours long. Right. Um, I do not recommend watching it now. It is terrible. It is a terrible <laughs> movie. It is horrid. But at the time, I loved it. I, I've seen that movie probably over 20 times when I was a kid. And, it, and it's about the Battle of Gettysburg the Civil War. So as of like six years old, I was obsessed with the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And then I got more involved as I got older in World War II, geopolitics of the World War I, World War II era. And then mm-hmm. recently I've been more in the Crusades, like 1300 to 1500, um, the Islamic world, the Middle East, that type of stuff. So for me, it's more the geopolitical, but also warfare, like mm-hmm. how it's changed over time. And, and uh, I just, I'm fascinated with it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm going to keep going deeper on this just because it is very interesting when people kind of reveal more on that, this, uh, this side of them. What's interesting most about it? Like what, like, what is it about like studying and learning these different areas of military that you get out of it? And then also how do you apply it in, is it just for fun or do you apply the, yeah. what you learn? <laughs> I, 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 I think I've probably applied some of the learnings when you're reading biographies on like Theodore Roosevelt or some of the leaders like leadership through these times yeah what's fascinating to me is more uh from the civil war as well as the crusades was just the brutality of it 
the the immense brutality of it. And so learning more about that and learning how people live through those time periods is very interesting to me. On the World War One, World War Two, especially World War Two, we're not that far removed. Right. From World War like we're talking a generation. Yeah. So for me, it's more around how something like like a world war could happen from the political the geopolitical standpoint. And what are the levers that were pulled in the early in the 30s that led to a world war in 1940? It, well, for right. the United States entering a world war, but that, yeah. that's kind of where. So I wouldn't say that I'm like studying World War II and the Battle of the Bulge, and that's helping my marketing team and <laughs> like landing page conversion. But it's <laughs> like if I once I like we're attacking from all fronts for our prospects, but. Um, if I were to ever retire, which probably won't happen, I would I would go do something on the history side. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, as far as leadership, you mentioned Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, any other leadership uh, idols or people that you uh, really like to learn from? Uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Like people, people think he's was crazy, but I think he was brilliant. I think he was a genius. And um, let's see, Theodore Roosevelt. This is S. Grant, um, and even uh, Patton. George mm. Patton was insane. He was he was he was terrible, but it, like his leadership style, I think you can learn quite a bit of the the drive and the proactivity and how he always um, seemed like he was one step ahead of of um, at least the German army in Africa for the right. most part. Right. Why do you think that is? Uh, he was obsessed with his craft mm. and it led to, it led to a lot of negativity and negative parts. He wasn't a very empathetic human being, but he was also a general of a world war. And I probably wouldn't be empathetic either if I was in those situations, right? It's easy. Hindsight's 2020, especially as we are living in, in probably the greatest time of, of life for anybody in the history of the planet. <laughs> right. It's easy for right. us to be like, Shame on you, George Patton. You're, you're <laughs> um, yeah. He was dealing with life or death. And, and I, I think that he was just obsessed with it. And he understood it innate. He an, an innate understanding and in how to do his job, like Rommel, like Ulysses mm -hmm. S. Grant, like, some, like Stonewall Jackson, a lot of these generals that you read about. Um, and and there, there's something to that. I'm not sure if it was healthy, but there's something to that when you read about how they how they approached what they did on a daily basis yeah no absolutely it's it's really interesting when you reflect on where we're at as a society just like as a human like being like people whatever and then compare that to like the best person in like the 14 15 or 16th century yeah. like like imagine not having air conditioning like i live in minnesota i know you're in Indianapolis. like could you imagine like dealing with humidity here coming soon no no thank you i will be happy to be where i'm at right now Every time. Yeah, well, and, and we romanticize history and we romanticize the past, but there is no way in hell that you can catch me walking down a street in the in the early 1800s. You know how terrible it smelled, all of it. Like right. even the even medieval times, like there is like you read these books where they time travel and they go back and they're like, uh, you know, it's really fun and, and, and eventful. And you would I you would be offended 
like all day, every day, right. and everything that you see. And we, I would die instantly. <laughs> it's not like how many fifth graders you could take on. It's more about or how many kindergartens you could take on. Like yeah. how long could you survive in medieval times? Yeah, I would get there and it'd be like I'd die of starvation in the first day because I didn't, yeah. you know. It, so I, I just, it's, it's fascinating because a lot of, a lot of people in our roles spend a lot of time reading business books. They read right. the Malcolm Gladwells and I, and I also do that, but I am more likely to read history books when I have free time because it mm-hmm. gives me a different perspective, but it also gets me away from the day to day. Yeah. Yeah. Having that escape. That's really important. Yeah. Well, let's transmission back to your day to day. For those who don't have context of Lessony, what do they do? And then any like recent public numbers to give a context of where you're at as far as like either revenue, growth, funding, whatever you feel most comfortable with. Yeah. So we're, so Lessonly, uh headquartered in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are about 250 strong um, training and enablement software for sales and customer service teams. So anybody from a sales team that's at a scale-up software company all the way up to a 20,000 person call center at a telecom company. Um, we help with practice, skills development, and basically learning your craft on a day-to-day routine instead of be pulling pulled into a training room, basically. Mm-hmm. Like building learning into your workflow instead of pulling people out of it. Um, you know, we've gone through Series C um, and we've, thanks, we've we've grown pretty significantly over the, since the October, November timeframe. Uh, that's great. Well, congratulations. And kind of talking about like, I mean, one of the reasons why I reached out was because of just your, uh, a presentation you gave to the Revenue Collective around uh, your experience as a CMO and what happened during 2020. And so one thing that kind of encapsulated uh, that and other things that you've talked about in the past is being an experienced maker in marketing. Can you tell me more about what does that mean to you and why is that so important? <clears throat> um, well, I don't, I don't care what role you're in, like the experience of the prospects and customers, the only thing that makes any of us relevant, that's it. That's rel- relevance is a positive experience from the prospect or the customer. And so I believe that marketing lives at the front of that. They are, they are the experience makers and managers, whether that is the internal culture of a company or it's a customer community. Hmm. Uh, if marketing is solely focused on revenue driving and growth, you are going to miss the importance of brand and experience and culture, you know, cause you, you, you are, your company is probably the best example of trying to figure out how to scale culture in a time when you, your growth was ungodly. Right. And right from zoom's perspective uh, over the past year and a half. So for me, experience means, are your customers having a great experience with the brand? Are your prospects having a great experience? And are your employees? And you have to start with employees first, but as you build that out, um, you, are, you are going to be able to maintain your identity as a company as you grow significantly. And that's very important to companies like Zoom and Leslie where it's about growth um, mm-hmm. overall. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you, you kind of talked about the, uh, the brand, the experience and the culture and starting with like the employees first and then going on to the customers. When you think about leading indicators for the experience makers and managers, what comes to mind? Leading indicators. 
Leading indicators in terms of like KPIs, metrics. What do you mean by yeah KPIs? Yeah, metrics. I mean, you you mentioned that you don't tie to revenue. Uh, it's more about that making sure everyone is having a good experience internally and externally. How well, do you measure that? Well, ultimately, ultimately, I don't. Ultimately, hmm. we so the way that we think about it, Leslie, which is kind of it's a little unique, is that we have twenty five percent of our time and money as a marketing team goes towards brand and experiences that we don't measure. Now, there's gonna come a point where pipeline influence and some of these other numbers are gonna be important, but right now, I don't care what the user conference does. I care that people are excited to be there mm -hmm. and we are getting good feedback, right? Mm -hmm. And then 75% or 60, if I did that math right, 20, let's just do 80, 20. I'm a, clearly not a data-driven marketer, but 80% of that is spent on generating revenue. Right. So I wanna be clear that in order for you to really spend time creating great experiences that are more about the experience than the metrics, mm -hmm. you have to generate revenue first, mm -hmm. right? So, so for us, I mean, you could get, if you want to get granular, you've got like MPS scores, you've got, you've got surveying that you do after major events, you've got how many direct mails were delivered and what feedback did you get? Um, there's a lot of things that you can use in order to, in order to measure a great experience. But what I've found is that your team will create the greatest experiences when you don't ask them to measure it. So it's like the, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of Rory Sutherland, who's, I think he's president of Ogilvy, but he wrote a book called Alchemy. Okay. That is all about um, irrationality in marketing. Like true, great experiences come from being irrational and not necessarily data-driven. Now, there's always a data-driven component, right? But right. true creativity comes from somebody being irrational and saying that I think this is going to work. Let's go try it. And then, you, of course, you test all those things. But that's yeah. how we approach it as lessonly is to say what's going to create the best experience, not necessarily what's going to create the best ROI. Interesting. Okay, so I, it's a really great tie-in to uh, kind of a quote that I, you know, came across was uh, from Ben uh, Horowitz, and it says the company story is the company strategy. So how does this all tie into that quote to you? I, I use that quote quite a bit on a lot of presentations because I think that it is the brilliance behind uh, the importance of brand when you're scaling. Um, okay. And a lot of times, because a lot of times you build, you build a product that has a feature set that will find product market fit, which mm -hmm. is great. But as you continue to build a customer base and you continue to scale, brand actually becomes more important than your feature sets because mm -hmm. you're competitive. You're going to be in a feature war till the day the company does not exist. Right. Right. Zoom's going to roll out a feature. All your competitors are going to roll them out two months from now. Cause it's just really easy to do. Now those timelines are not correct, but I don't want some engineer listening to this thing. <laughs> what, um, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, think about the security and the encryption here. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but the point is that if the company's story is not strong from the beginning and the company's story does not have a foundation it can evolve on, then mm -hmm. you will lose the race to the top, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so when Ben Horowitz said that, I really think that you can, you can build feature sets all day long and, and features can be a part of the story, but it's what, what is the mission? What's the vision? What are the values? 
how are you telling the story on a daily basis, which you understand, you know, all the time. Um, that is why it's important because, you know, Lessonly can roll any feature out that we want. Our competitors are going to build those same features, but they, mm -hmm. our competitors can never tell the story that we have. And, and also the top of the, the same experience that you're producing. Right. right. Interesting. Okay. So in your opinion, this is a competitive moat for, for you, for, for Lessonly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So, so if I'm listening to this, I'm a revenue operator, I'm a founder at a, a company that has part of market fit and I'm looking to grow and scale. Where do I start with my story to really kind of create that brand, that experience? Like what would your guidance be there? Oh, where do you start? I would say, I'd say you talk to your customers. You know, I, I think they're the one thing that we did wrong early on at Leslie was we focused way too much on brand and not enough on business impact. Because mm. I think you need both when telling a story, right? You, you know, our mission statement is, and I'll, I'll get to the question, but our, mm -hmm. our mission statement is Leslie is we help people do better work so they can live better lives. Like the, the storylines off that thing are, are, I could go for eternity building storylines right. off that mission statement. Like it's just a great mission statement. Yeah. Uh, so we focused a lot on how you do better work as a company or as a person and and how do you live a better life through training and enablement. But we didn't really focus early on on like, what does that do to the bottom line of the company? So I think you mm -hmm. need both. So when you're starting out, your customers are the ones that are going to be, your customers are your best salespeople. You know, when we were a million, two million in ARR, the customers were the ones selling it for us. And, and it's important. I think it's important that that marketers and founders have some type of rhythm with their product, the customers that gave them product market fit to better understand how to tell the story. You know, and I will never be up to the level of an Andy Raskin, right? Who's a, who is a professional storyteller and helps companies all over the world with messaging. Mm -hmm. But I usually start with the customer and then how do you augment your mission statement so that your internal employees believe the story as well? Because I think mm -hmm. the biggest misstep on the marketing side when it comes to messaging and positioning is that you focus almost too much on the marketing, too much on customers, and then your employee base doesn't believe in it. Mm. Your employee base also, I mean, that's why enablement is so important, right? Your employee right. base has to believe in the idea before your customers will, before your prospects will, which is why I set that up a little bit earlier in the conversation that the right. experience is important across all three of those cohorts. Right. No, that's really interesting. Uh, so kind of like looking at, you know, lessonly, you have a mascot called the llama and yes. I think it's a really good example of how to something irrational, something that doesn't make a lot of sense, but it seemed to really, uh, catalyze your employee base as well as your, uh, customers and everything else. So, um, yeah, let, like, tell me more about that. Like, what's the story behind there? The, the llama. Yeah, I so that this was before my time. Uh, apparently, this the well, it's called his name's Ollie. He actually, we actually have a real llama that exists in upstate New York named Ollie that lives on a farm that will join our Zoom calls and stuff. Um, congratulations to Ollie Llama, by the way. He just had a little kid or baby llama, whatever you call a baby llama. But um, yeah, so <laughs> I, I digress from Ollie in upstate <laughs> New York. Uh, so, Ollie. Appara yeah, apparently, there was there was a 
drawing of, of a llama that showed up on these chalkboards in our old office. And every time somebody tried to erase it, it just kept showing up. So eventually Max and Connor and Mitch Causey, who are like the three original um, people at Lessonly, they decided, hey, let's own this. We're going to do Ali Llama. So Ali Llama existed at the very beginning of Lessonly, right? And so what happened was Ali Llama was there. It's really cute to have a llama. And they started incorporating uh, employee awards called the Golden Llama. One employee every quarter gets the Golden Llama Award that, that basically lives the values of the company. In our office today, we have a Golden Llama wall that we have picture, we have Golden Llamas on the wall, but we also have, have pictures of the recipients over the past 10 years. Um, and what, where, where it shifted for me was, hey, the employees love it. Like there was, Ollie would show up randomly, but when I got here in 2017, we just, we doubled down on it significantly because, and it was almost the perfect time where Target started releasing a bunch of llama stuff. Like, mm. so we started doing a cute little llama while it became popular in mainstream right. culture. Um, but what really did it for us was we started sending golden llamas out to our customers and prospects and their little three. I mean, I'm pretty sure we funded this company up in uh, the UP, Michigan that make these like three inch llamas because we've bought 10,000 of them from them. But, <laughs> and I've spray painted about 3,000. So we, it's first started out where we had these three inch llamas that we would spray paint gold okay. and we would send them to a customer and it had a little card in there and said, hey, give this golden llama to a teammate that lives the values of your company, take a picture and share it. We've sent out over 5,000 over the past four years. And that took, that was the step taking it out of an internal culture building thing that's all Lama to our customer and prospect base. And then it just, it blew up from there on Ollie's pretty much on everything and involved in cab and Ollie, there's Ollie's all over our user conference. And um, it just became part of the identity. And it, but that was the, that was the, Ollie was the catalyst to say, our internal culture is strong enough that we want to give it to our customer and prospect base and it mm. worked because it scaled, it scaled our culture um, in a way that was meaningful. And if you look at well, my past life with that was that exact target, they did the same thing. And, and we were mm. hiring 500 people in one year. Like we IPO were bought by Salesforce, but, but the orange culture that exact target developed had to start internal and then expanded to the customers and prospects and just created made customers heroes and created raving fans. Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, the customer uh, giving you their, their approval and, and yeah. willing to make those introductions. That's, that's always huge for the listener. Could you tell the story of the orange culture? So that way they can compare and contrast that story of lessonly. Yeah, so Exact Target, for those of you who weren't familiar, uh, was email marketing platform. Um, competed with like the responses of the world. This was 20, uh, 2012, 2015 timeframe. Um, what what Exact Target did right was they actually didn't have we didn't have a mascot. We we branded a color, and the color was orange. And the orange color was different than any of our competitors like Bronto and Responses and Cheetah Mail, and. What worked there was that the onboarding of employees, you went through a um, orange culture onboarding that was a week and you did it with a cohort. Like my cohort was 40 people from all over the world, flew into Indy and everything was orange. 
-hmm. and you learned about the values behind the orange culture. And that was the catalyst towards the bigger orange culture, which included our customers and prospects. So while Lessonly has values incorporating a mascot, Exact Target had values incorporated around a color. And mm. I've seen them, I've seen both of them work really well. Mm -hmm. um, col the color actually gives you a little bit more of a, of a space to work. If you have a mascot, you kind of have to stick around that mascot. We're just lucky that I have amazing designers on the team that can make Ollie just awesome all the time. <laughs> no, there's uh, some very impressive designs out there with, uh, with Ollie. So, yes. uh, no, that's really, that's really interesting. Uh, with that, let's kind of transition with how does that involve your, your field marketing? Uh, what does that begin to look like? And especially like with conferences, you know, now that we're getting to a point where those might be coming in person, what are your thoughts around these components of your brand and your experience? Well, it's all about the experience. So if we, we do, we were doing 16 to 18 dinners a quarter before the pandemic, like in mm -hmm. territories, uh, what we learned was we, we actually don't pitch our product ever at any event. Mm -hmm. uh, even our user conference, we have never had a product keynote um, because it should be around the experience. And if you have a product that works and the experience is great, your customers are going to sell for you. And mm -hmm. we have witnessed that. So when it comes to virtual events, it's all about the experience, wine tasting, whiskey tasting, cooking classes, uh, whatever else you can buy now, because there's tons of them. Yep. We invite 50% customers, 50% prospects, and then we just do the event. We don't talk about lessonly and it comes up naturally. And mm -hmm. so when I, when I think of field marketing, it's more around how do you create something enjoyable, not how do you create an event that will drive leads and revenue? Um, because there's too many events that are just there to, to drive demand. And those mm -hmm. events are usually boring as hell and nobody wants to be at them. That's why you get, that's why you get 10%, 20% show rates on webinars and virtual events that are just product pitches. We're getting right. 90 percent show rates at our virtual events. Wow. Now those That's are cool. they're not a thousand people, but right. you know, they're they're 30 extremely targeted people that that and that uh, wanna be there. You know, mm -hmm. our skills summit, we had over a thousand people, it was an all-day virtual event. We had a four, 40 to fifty percent show rate. Because it's wow. because you just it's all about the experience. Right. How many of those thousand of that 500 like customer base, how many times was it their first time? And how many of it was like they're like returning because they had such a great experience? That's a good question. I'd say that out of those 500 that showed up for the product launch, two or two to 300 of them were customers that have probably been at an event before. The rest were either prospects or, or lessonly channel partners or some other, some other, um, group that we serve um, on the marketing right. side. So wow. we have a, we have a, we have a mobile app called Llama Nation. That's like our customer community. What? And that has like, it's close to 900 people on it. Yeah. Customers on it. Yeah. And that kind of helps us fuel our customer base as well, because it's, it's, it's a mobile app that has chat functionality games on it. We have a thing called Llama Loot that allows you to earn points to get llama bucks to then go to AliLlama.co, which is our clothing line. 
to yeah. buy cl- to buy less league gear and stuff like that. Uh, that's genius. Uh, what other really cool, unique things are you doing for the experience? Because I've never heard anything like that. That is <laughs> genius. Well, no, the the clothing line actually. Um, we launched Ali Lama and Co. Uh, over the holiday. Yeah. And it was, it was for like, we couldn't figure out what to do for our customer. Like every year we send our customers something. And so we thought, let's launch a Shopify store. That's all Llama and co brand, which is not lessonly at all. It's just a llama, a llama logo and send gift cards, virtual gift cards to all of our customers. And they can decide either to give the money to donorschoose.org or, or our foundation at lessonly, or they could go buy gear. So that's how it started. And then we've just, we've made a decision to keep the store running um, and, and roll out uh, different clothing lines based off of the season. Or if we have like our state of the union or our user conference called yellow ship in October, we'll have yellow ship gear that we'll sell on there. Right. Um, but other cool thing, I mean, we've done a board, like we built a board game from the ground up that we send. We've got a Lego llama that you can put together um but uh, overall it's more just how do you how do you make sure something's enjoyable yeah and it goes back into that bucket of what's unique i've i've just the clothing line i've heard but i've never heard of the online community through an app that yeah. can drive people just to that and i think that is very interesting i mean like just again to your point of standing out and providing a great experience. Yeah. So within this, like again, uh, the other component that most people think of marketing is like your content, social media. How are you driving that experience? Because that's probably more of your awareness, uh, you know, stage at that point where more of the experience is like people have already been customers. How are you thinking about that piece of it? It's the social side of it is more, you know, content depends on what you're talking about. Cause we have a pretty, we have a very strong organic strategy. We have a very strong content marketing strategy on the social side. It's very much brand. It's mm-hmm. built into the brand. It's in the brand voice. It's, it's highly unlikely that we're, that we're direct selling somebody through the social site through like Twitter and LinkedIn where we mm-hmm. spend our most, when we spend the most time. Social media for me as a channel is more related to the, the, the brand than it is demand gen. We do mm-hmm. have, we do have a social, we have social ad campaigns that we run through our vendor, through our ad mm-hmm. agency. But outside of that, it's very much brand oriented. We have like better worker of the week. That's a customer we highlight, you know, we have an MVP Lee that we nominate every week. That's a employee that we'll share. Um, and then of course, Golden Llama will announce every quarter, but right. it's more, it's way more brand type culture than it right. is like demand. Right. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. So as I'm talking about this and just also uh, being aware of like what you've done on your social uh, sites, mostly on LinkedIn, how does this play into personal brand and how does this involve what you're thinking about that side of, yeah. of that, of, of that? Oh, man, I, I, I don't think we have, Leslie hasn't done a great job on this. And I think we just touched the surface on using and building the personal brands of our employees mm-hmm. in a way that's meaningful. I, I was building one very early on. So I've had one when I joined Leslie, but there, there has got to be a way to 
build the personal brands of your management team, right? But the people that want to do it, like if you don't want right. to do it, you're, you're not going to do it, right? Right, but right. Gravy is a software company that's located in Tennessee, I think, that that has done a pretty good job helping their executive team be seen online. But for us, it's it's how do we how do we find those subject matter experts that we can then build their brand and their identity in a way that's meaningful? Like our CEO, Max Yoder, wrote a book called Do Better Work. It's about the values behind Leslie. It has nothing to do with training enablement software. It's just, it's about leadership. And we've used Do Better Work in, in a lot of direct mail, right? And he has a second book coming out in July called To See It, Be It. That's from his notes that he writes every week. None of it has to do with the product. None of it has to do with the software. It's all about just how do you, it's about leadership and how you can be just a good human being. And then, and then we'll start down the route of like sales enablement is a category that we play in, that we sell to. We have a subject matter expert named Megan Brazina, who's our head of revenue effectiveness and building more identity around her as a presenter, as a speaker, as a writer, so that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a meaningful contribution to her career, but also to Leslie. We did it, Exact Target had a team called um, Marketing Insights and Research. It was basically a thought leadership team where hmm. they, hired, they hired me and all I did was speak at conferences. So they had this team that did research as well as presented that research at conferences like Adobe Summit and a bunch of different places. Uh, I think any business can do that in a way that's meaningful because um, uh, the more people that you can get using places like LinkedIn and Twitter, the more the more visibility you have as a company. Right, right. And it helps not only with customers, but think about recruiting, think yes. about uh, all those other like really great uh, additional resources. Oh, that's, uh, that's really fascinating. So as you're beginning to think about these experiences, the personal branding that you mentioned that it's very purposeful. If you kind of think about, you know, magic eight ball, you look into the future, what are some more interesting things that you foresee marketing or another way to think about is what are some tests that you want to try out that is going to be kind of exciting for you? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things. Number one is marketing becoming more involved in culture and talent development. Um, hmm. Tim, Tim Kopp, who's the CMO at exact target, but also he's the CEO at terminus. Now he talks a lot about how marketing should own culture, um, which is what they did at exact target basically. Um, so I think that's interesting because uh, not necessarily the talent development side and the upskilling and all that stuff, but like just the experience that you have as an employee and the onboarding and all that stuff. I think that's interesting. I think this, um, this revenue type model where you have marketing and sales reporting under the same structure as well as CX eventually, because everybody's going to be revenue, uh, going to be sourcing revenue. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting, but I think marketing should run sales, which nobody agrees with, but that's, I'm a little biased. Tell um, me, tell me more about that. Let's, let's pause real quick right there. We'll, we'll get yeah. back to it. If it's an unpopular opinion, why do you think that? And then also, why do people disagree with you? Like, other than the obvious, like, what's the counterpoints that you hear? I, you know what? I don't, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure why this exists, but if you are going to talk to any type of VC firm or PE firm or 
a board of directors and they're going to hire a CRO, mm-hmm. they usually hire a sales leader. And actually, they never think about hiring a marketing leader. And I think that's because traditionally marketing has been solely on influenced numbers and more mm-hmm. about brand and communications and not generating revenue. Mm. I would love to see that change because from the marketing perspective, if you're generating revenue and you're building pipeline, you have a seat at the table. And I right. think traditionally that just hasn't been the case. Um, so, but I also think that marketers have a better understanding of how to create great experiences. Science or mm-hmm. sales tends to be more science and process oriented, which is great. And I don't, I would never manage a sales team directly, right? If I became right. a CRO, you would hire a VP of sales that was really good. You would just be able to think more proactively about the entire customer journey, not just the 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 the, the decision to purchase part of, right. of the of the life cycle. Right. Um, and marketers, I I just think we're. I don't. I'm I'm generalizing a bunch of people, so I apologize 100%. to everybody listening. It's. Uh, <laughs> Marketers just tend to be a little bit more empathetic. And when you're more empathetic mm-hmm. and you have some creative bent, you can actually uh, you can actually drive experiences that people want to have with a brand. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a very good value argument. I but you have think- to you have to generate revenue because if I yeah. was if I was in this role lessonly and I was doing like a bunch of brand stuff and like PR, I would never, I would fail miserably at a CRO position. Right. But right. If marketing can generate revenue and source that revenue, support that revenue, then yeah. it should make sense that we could at least put our hand up to say, hey, you know, I, I would actually try the CRO route. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, some really good points, especially if you start thinking about like more SaaS metrics of where net dollar expansion of being able to retain customers is more important yeah. than ever. And if you own the experience from end to end, yeah. then it only continues to feed itself. That is uh, that's a really, no. Well, if it's argument. a good experience, if it's a good experience, and I know you're experiencing this as Zoom, you, you know, you're eventually you get to a point at scale where your expand, your net dollar retention is more important, your expansion mm-hmm. revenue, right? Yep. So in order for, in order for it to be 120, 130%, 140%, you've got to have a good experience before that. And I just believe that it starts with marketing and should end with marketing, but right. I'm also biased because I am a marketer. Right. Well, I mean, it's uh, the, only makes sense. The other trend, which I think pertains to you for sure, is that uh, when it comes to alignment on revenue teams, alignment should live in the enablement team. Mm. And the enablement team should be the hub to every revenue team as spoke. So Lessonly, we have what's called revenue effectiveness team. And that's basically our marketing enablement, sales enablement, CX enablement, pre-sales, post-sales enablement, Mm -hmm. our solutions consultants, and our onboarding, our customer onboarding. And that lives in the center of, and they partner with RevOps Mm -hmm. to be the one source of truth for all of our data and all of our content. Oh, interesting. So they are the they are the model that aligns everybody else to us moving forward as one group. And okay. I I don't see that normally, and I just mm. think I, I and I and I I'm almost to the point where I think there should be an executive officer that has to do with effectiveness and enablement. Right. Where it's so, where it doesn't live under sales or it doesn't live under marketing. Right. 
so at that point, because what I, I have seen too is a kind of a go-to-market specialist, someone yeah. that has both the operational side, the enablement side, um, and then they work in alignment with marketing sales and customer success. Uh, it's really interesting. Mm. Anything so else? I, so like, I, that's, that's, I, I think that's the future of, of a lot of stuff is can you yeah. combine enablement and rev ops into one team that's kind of the, the central source of truth for the entire company? Yeah. Uh, outside of Lessonly, any organization that's doing that really well or an individual that you would like to? Um, I think the team at Clarity does it really well, but I haven't seen, I haven't seen a team structure that hat that is like, uh, even, I'm sorry, product marketing also lives in enablement. Mm. So okay. they don't live in product and they don't live in marketing. So I haven't seen a structure like that before, but yeah. it's probably because we're crazy. But, yeah. it works. I, but hey, you never know until you try, right? Right. <laughs> uh, okay. So last two questions here. Uh, what habits or frameworks have helped you uh, professionally? Um, I'm a big proponent of time management, productivity, Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. I love, I think I, I have a very, I, I talk about a very simplified version of what he writes about, but it time blocking and actually spending more than 30 minutes on something without any, um, distractions. Like I make, mm-hmm. I think multitasking and slack is like destroying everything when it comes to productivity of teams. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, time blocking, time management, pr- prioritization is a huge thing. It gets harder as I have more responsibility because you're in more meetings. But mm-hmm. for my teammates, like the ICs and the managers, the frontline managers, like time blocking is so important because it helps them focus. Um, that That is like from a framework perspective, that's usually what I try to focus on is just to make sure that... Um, there's a prioritization to it. And um, from a metrics perspective, we had a new VP of RevOps joining Lesson Lee and she brought um, Carmen Seep. She brought a level zero to level four structure for metrics and KPIs. So level zero is like company objectives. Mm-hmm. Level one is VP objective, exec objectives. And then it goes down to level four being the individual contributors objectives. Oh, and that, frame, that framework has been extremely helpful to us thinking through our forecasts and pipeline and, and uh, just numbers across the board. So right. I, I think that, I think if you, I think if any individual spends time, time blocking, mm-hmm. going back to the original, uh, you are going to be, you're going to have a competitive advantage that nobody else has. And then the other thing is get good sleep. Yeah. What's, uh, what's your habit to go to sleep? Like what, what's kind of your routine there? I don't have, I don't have a great routine because I have small children, but I, <laughs> if it, when I do have a good routine, it's like, don't stop drinking anything or eating anything after like seven thirty or 8 PM you're in, you're reading in bed by 10. And then I'm usually up between four and five. So wow. it depends on if I can get deep, like some, some between like nine and five or nine and four, then I'm usually pretty good, but it's that cutting stuff off at 7 PM. is so important. Right. Yeah, no, uh, that's, that's a really good point. And then as far as the time blocking prioritization night before morning of like, how do you think about blocking that off? Or is it like a consistent in your calendar? It's, it, it should be consistent. 
So for me, it's not consistent. So I will do it in the morning or evening. But if mm -hmm. you have a consistent schedule, I usually tell people to block off the weeks and just do reoccurring. So you know when it's going to happen. Nobody can book over those times. Um, so that's that's how I at least teach it. Yeah, no, that's really good advice. Uh, and then final question, uh, any words for the listener? Could be anything. Oh man, <laughs> could be anything. anything. I'm trying to think of some Civil War general quote, but I can't at the moment. Um, man, uh, don't take yourself too seriously. I think that any high-performing individual takes themselves way too seriously. And um, I, I think it's just so important to remember that nobody has any idea what they're doing. I don't care what level you are. None of us have any idea what we're doing. So don't take yourself too seriously and just have fun because we're all terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect words. Kyle, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you.